chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. I had this interesting thought this week. I was thinking about you guys and our church and um, appreciative of how receptive you are to the word. How I feel like when I'm preaching that I have great eye contact from people, which shows someone you're, you're listening. Um, I mean, some of you do sleep every once in a while, but, you know, I'll give you a pass. But that shows me, right, the eye contact or a little head nod or whatever. It shows me that people are listening, and I appreciate that. Folks who were willing after the service to even say, what about this verse or what about this? That shows me that you were listening and, and thinking about the Scripture. And I truly appreciate that as someone who preaches the Word to you. But I, I began to think, you know, for many of you, you come and you listen to a sermon because that's just what you've always done. It's what you do. And for many of you, like I said, you, you desire to hear God's Word, and it's just you want to hear it. Um, but I think oftentimes, even as the preacher, I might lose sight from sermon to sermon of why you should listen to me talk and why you should listen to the sermon. And so today's sermon, I want to give you three reasons right up front why you should listen to it. So if you're on the fence right now thinking, I'm going to give him five minutes and I'm turning him off. Um, if you're on the fence, let me give you three reasons why you should listen to this sermon today especially, and I'm going to give these three reasons in the form of a question. The first question is this, have you ever wondered why God gave so many laws in the Bible? Have you ever just wondered, like, why are there so many laws and rules and restrictions in the Bible? If you've ever wondered that, this sermon, I think, can be helpful to you. Number two, are you a Christian who struggles with sin? Still. That's all of us, right? If you're a Christian, you still struggle with it. If you're a Christian who struggles with sin, this sermon can help you today. Number three, are you here today or are you listening to the sound of my voice and you're just not really sure why Jesus is such a big deal? If you're not sure why Jesus is such a big deal, I believe this sermon can be of great help to you today. So those are three reasons why you should give me the next 30 minutes to speak to you from, from God's Word. As we come to chapter 7 of Romans, um, a very interesting chapter. We're going to do half this morning and then the second half next week, Lord willing. But the discussion here is related to sanctification, which is to say the process by which we grow more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world. And we're going to find out in Romans 8 that if you have been justified, if you've been born again, you will be sanctified. And then if you've been justified, you will be sanctified, and you will be one day glorified. And it's a golden chain that goes together, and it cannot be broken. So there's no such thing as a Christian who is saved or justified and never becomes sanctified. Because the Bible says clearly, those who are justified, he sanctifies. And so this passage, again, helps us think about our Christian life, our Christian growth, our Christian walk. And we're going to just read it a couple of verses at a time. And so, and I'll make some comments as we go along. But notice with me the principle of the passage in verse 1. If you found verse 1 in Romans 7, say word. word. Verse 1, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he, 
is alive, as long as he lives. The principle is what Paul gives us here, and he begins with the law. And so when I say the word law, I'm thinking about the Ten Commandments, but also just the entirety of the law he gave Moses there on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. Hundreds of laws, but we summarize them, of course, in the Ten Commandments. How many of you could tell me today the first of the Ten Commandments? Do you know the first one? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's a good one. That's the first one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And even that one, the first one, when I read it, when I think about it, I'm reminded every day I fall short of that commandment. Because every day, don't we serve a lesser God than our God? Every day, don't we put ourself, our sin, or our stuff, our comfort, our prosperity above Him? And by doing so, we break the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other God before me. And so when I read these laws, it, it's a glimpse. It's a glimpse that, that as good as we want to be, as Christian as we want to be, we still fall short. The principle he makes in verse 1 then is, as you see it there, he's speaking to those who know the law. And the principle is, don't you know that those who have become believers, those who are in Christ, have in a sense been released from the law of Moses? What he says there is because Christ has died, our old self has died that was under the law, and a new life has come about in Christ. We talked about this recently. Look back in chapter 6 in your Bible there and find verse 3. We discussed this a couple of weeks ago. In Romans 6, verse 3, listen to it. It says, Know you not that so many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was, excuse me, <clears throat> was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection, listen, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And so the principle of this passage, of, of verse 1 in this passage, is that those who are in Christ are no longer under the law. Then he gives an example. Look with me at verses 2 and 3 in chapter 7. He gives an example, an illustration to explain the principle. He says, For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband, so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Now that's a pretty simple illustration, I think, right? What he's saying is, this woman that he's given as an illustration, she's married to a man, and under the law, she is, you know, joined to him, connected to him. But when he dies, she is freed from that law, right? When she dies, when he dies, the husband, she is free to remarry. She is out from under that law. And so he gives us this as an example, and then look at verses 4 and 5 where he explains what he's talking about. Wherefore, my brethren, 
ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. You see the connection? That ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Did you catch verse 4? He's saying this. He's saying, and here's how he, he makes this example of marriage from verses 2 and 3. It's like before you became a Christian, you were married to sin. That's what he's saying. You were married to sin. You were joined to it. It was a union that you happily uh, took part in as a sinner. And in verse 5, he even says that that uh, sin led to an offspring, like you do when you get married. Typically, there's offspring. And the offspring of our marriage with sin is something that produces, it says there, death. You remember what Romans 6.23 says? For the wages of sin is death. Our union with sin brought about no positive things, only death and sorrow. So what does it take for us to leave the marriage with sin and enter into a new union? And we saw it multiple times in this passage already. The answer is the word death. And sin didn't die. Who died? Christ. Christ died, and then we died with Christ, Romans 6, 3 through 6. And so once we believed in Jesus, listen, church, we were freed from the law, and we broke free from sin, and we were joined, married, if you will, to Christ. Aren't we the bride of Christ? And what a union that is. Isn't that a union? We bring nothing to the marriage but the sin that made it possible, the sin that made it necessary, and Christ gives us so many blessings. That's not how our marriages work, is it? Usually, usually both parties bring a little something to the marriage, you know, a little something, but with Christ, he brought it all and brought us to be united with him with all the blessings that go with that. And the fruit of that union is life. So what's the point of this? Look at verse 6. We're going to verse 13 today, by the way, but we're in verse 6. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The thing I wrote down here is, as a Christian, we still sin, but we don't have to. I mean, we do, and we're going to because we have that sin nature, but we have day-by-day day opportunities and choices to choose righteousness over sin. It's like a coin. I thought I brought one today. I did. Like this quarter, 1967. Quarter. And it's one coin, but it has two sides, right? There's, what's his name? George Washington? I think so. Isn't it George Washington? Who is that? Okay, sorry. And there's a huge eagle on the back. Yes, George. And so, anyway, um, one coin, two sides, right? So our Christian life is like this. On the one side, we've been set free from sin. And on the other side, we still sin. We're still one person. We're still a Christian if we're in Christ. But we know that sin is still a part of that. 
But the point of this text, the point of Romans 7, is that we no longer live according to the law, and we're going to get to that in a moment, but we live, and I love that phrase in the middle of that verse, in verse 6, we should serve in newness of spirit. That we no longer live by the law or by sin, but we live by the Spirit of God. And so when I read these verses, the, thing I, the, the note I've jotted down is, I, if I've been delivered from the law, does that mean the law is something bad that I needed to be delivered from? Is God's word, is the law bad? Look at verse 7. He asks it this way. He says, the Apostle Paul does, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Like, I was just asking, is it bad? Is it necessary? Is it helpful? And he says in verse 7, should we say the law is sin? And what's his answer? God forbid, absolutely not. Let's continue in verse 7. I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Let me give us an example here. You may find this hard to believe, but I used to drive fast. And by used to, I meant an hour ago. <laughs> I was coming through Nettleton this morning thinking, I need to slow down because if I get a ticket, it'll be a perfect sermon illustration this morning. <laughs> but yes, I have received a couple of speeding tickets in my life. Even one coming to church. Way back. The law of God is like that speed limit sign. I want you to think about it that way. The law is like the speed limit sign. The speed limit sign doesn't make you speed, but it informs you that you are speeding, or how much by how much you are speeding. But, but the law, the sign didn't make you do it, did it? You might try to say that, but it really didn't. You did it, but the sign was giving you that information of what you should, not, should and should not do. In the same way, God's law does not make us sin, but it informs us of our sin. Watch this. God's law stirs in us feelings of rebellion. God's law stirs up in sinners feelings of rebellion. How many of you had a child, and you tell that child, don't touch that hot plate, and what's the first thing they do? They touch the hot plate. Don't touch that oven, that stove. What do they do? I'm going to try it out anyway. Like, kid, what are you doing? And they're children. It's in us. Rebellion against the law. The law is don't touch the hot plate. And what do they do? Touch it. Rebellion is in us. And they do it. What's that saying? Um, Rules are meant to be broken. Why did we come up with that saying? (laughs) So we could break the rules, right? This is in us. How many of us see a rule and think, I'm going to figure out a way to break that. This is real personal right here, and I'm, I'm just going to be like, I know we're going to relate to this, but how many of you in the last year went to a store and had a huge sign that said, do not enter unless you're wearing a mask, and how many of you like me said, I don't have a mask, I need the bread, I'm going in anyway. <laughs> how many of you said, you know what, I'm not putting that stupid mask on, I'm going in. <laughs> it's like I would have wore the mask until I saw the sign, and I was like, you know what, no. I'm going to be rebellious. How many of us do that? How many of us are rebellious? How, how about this illustration? Back to the road sign. When you all go on a long trip and you set your vehicle on cruise control, do you put it right on the 70 miles per hour? You can get away with what? Three over the limit? Five over the limit? Seven? Twenty? 
Nobody in here goes, I'm going to cruise on 70 miles an hour for the next three hours, I'm guessing. We see that limit, and what do we try to do? Let's see how much we can break it by. Imagine you get pulled over, and the cop comes up and says, you know, you're you doing 75 and a, and a 50 or whatever. Well, you know what, officer? I, I think this road should be a 75. <laughs> What's he going to say? Well, I don't make the laws. I just enforce them, right? Like, you know, we can't just change the law. By the way, this is a fun activity. If you're married, I love this. When your spouse is driving, don't say a word. Lean over and just look at the speedometer. And then just don't say a word. Spouses love that. Hey, I know. When Pam's here, I know. Look, here's my point of all that. The speed limit sign is the law. The law is actually a good thing most of the time. But the law, when it comes to God's word, is a good thing. But what it does is stirs in us a rebellious nature, particularly before we become a Christian, right? It stirs in us this, this rebellion. But it's so important because it shows us right from wrong. Look at verse 8. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of, say it with me, concupiscence. Just kidding. That means covetousness or lust in in old, old English. For without the law, sin was dead. What this verse tells us is that apart from the law, sin is dead. Apart from the law, sin is not really considered is another way to say it. Last year, we went to Dallas, speaking of speeding, and Aiden and I went to Dallas, and I had been to Texas in, in years, and they were driving so fast out there. And I was looking for speed limit signs, like, what's the limit around here? Because they were just flying by us. I want you to imagine, some of you have been to Texas before, I want you to imagine you drive all the way across Texas, which has got to be what? Is that 1,000 miles? or It's probably less than that, but it's a long way. It's 700, 800 miles, it's a long way. Imagine you drive all the way across Texas, and you don't see one speed limit sign. Are you going to even think about speeding at that point? If you're driving for an hour or two hours and don't see a single speed limit sign, you're just going to be like, whatever, I'm just going to go, <laughs> right? But the law, the, the law is there to make us consider the sin, you see? The speed limit sign there is, is there to make us consider the sin, and God's law is there to make us consider our sin. Verse 9, he says, For I was alive without the law, Once, but when the commandment came, sin revived or sin came alive and I died. I love this part. When the commandment of God became real to me through the gospel, sin came alive to me and I died to it. In other words, when you became a Christian, Do you remember this? Do you remember when you became a Christian? Do you remember that time when you became aware of how bad your sin was and how hurtful it was to God and how offensive it was to God? When I became a Christian, I can think back and remember this time when I realized I needed to stop rebelling. If there's never been a time in your life where you realized the sin is wrong and it's hurtful and it's offensive to God and I need to stop it, If you've never had a time where you felt that way, you've probably never met Jesus, right? I remember that. I remember thinking, wow, because 
I now have open eyes to what sin is. I don't want to do this sin and this sin and this sin. I even took it too far, too. I, I was a legalist in a, a lot of senses. I'm like, I'm not going to say a single bad word ever. And you can ask my wife. It was probably 15 years before she heard me say a quote-unquote bad word. But eventually kids come along and that messed all that up. <laughs> you know, yeah, thank you, thank you. But I took it so far, I was like, I'm not going to rebel against God. And if saying inappropriate words or rebelling against God, I'm never going to say one. I still said inappropriate stuff at times. But. And I would take it that far. I would take it, I would take it probably maybe too far. But I, I had this thought in me with Christ saving me that I did not want to keep sinning. It wasn't possible. I still messed up. I still do. But my point is this. A mark of genuine conversion is that something in you changes, and it's called the Spirit of God who comes into you, and He gives you a desire to do what's right. And so then you begin to obey God because God has already made you new. Let me ask you this morning, very personal to, to every single person, why do you obey God? Do you obey God because you're scared of Him? Do you obey God because you think by obeying Him you'll gain His approval? Do you obey God because you want to look holy in front of others? None of those are the primary reason we should obey Him. And if we are obeying God for those reasons, then we are living by the law that we're supposed to have died to, and we're not living by the Spirit or by grace. Look at verse 10. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be death. We had a good word this morning from the Old Testament. The Old Testament often says things like this. Obey and live. Obey God's word and you'll live. And Paul says, that commandment which was life to me has now become death because now I realize that obeying in that sense will never give me life. Only trusting in Christ will give me life. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, if you believe in me, though you die, you shall live. I am the resurrection and the life. Verse 11, it says in verse 11, um, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and it slew me. Again, sin, uh, by the commandment, by the law, sin command deceived me, sin killed me, sin was a destroyer of my life. Verse 12 is the law good, though? Is it bad? This sounds like we're saying the law is bad, but what's the verse 12 say? The law is holy, the commandment is holy, it is just, and it is good. Verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful let me kind of repeat myself as i emphasize this just because you get that speeding ticket doesn't make the sign wrong it makes your actions wrong just because the law of god shows me where i'm wrong it doesn't make the law bad it makes me a sinner and it points me to a savior which is christ this text church should keep us from legalism. Legalism, according to Tim Keller, Tim Keller, legalism says, I obey, therefore God accepts me. And Christianity says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Which one of those do you love by? 
Legalism says, I obey, so God will surely accept me. That's wrong. Christianity says, I'm accepted by God, so I will obey. Hey, laws are good. Rules are good. They're a good guide to us. But we cannot keep the rules. We're going to break them. We break all Ten Commandments, by the way, pretty much. Like, thou shalt not murder, and you say, or thou shalt not kill. And you're like, well, I've never killed anybody. What did Jesus say about that commandment? If you've hated your brother, you've already commit, you know, broken that commandment. I've never committed adultery. Well, Jesus said if you lust in your heart, you've already broken that commandment. We can't keep the rules. The point of the law is to show us we can't keep it. Let me add this. In the course of church history, that knowing we can't keep the rules... Churches even sometimes add to the rules that we can't keep. Isn't that silly? And so we impose our own laws or rules on people that we think they should keep to be a part of our church. And I do think, by the way, there are guidelines we should be a part of, which is faith in Christ and believing the right things and things like that. But the church over church history has come up with so many silly things. Like y'all know, we take up offering in the back. We have a box back there and people put their money in there. Some churches would think that's like the most unbiblical thing because they think you've got to pass the plate down through the church. And it's a rule, man. And if you try to change it, it doesn't work well. But that's just a man-made rule, right? And it's fine however they want to do it, but we've added things like that. We've added rules knowing we can't keep the rules. I won't read it to you this morning, but in Galatians chapter 3, if you're interested in this passage, read Galatians 3. He says, if you rely on the works of the law then you are under a curse because you can't do it. And he says the righteous must live by faith. Conclusion. I told you, ask you at the beginning, why should you listen to this sermon? I gave you three reasons, and now I want to answer those as conclusion. The first thing I asked you was, have you ever wondered why God gave us so many laws in the Bible? And I hope you could even answer that without me saying this. But the law is given to show us right from wrong, and to show us our inability to do what is right. And then when we realize right from wrong, and we realize the impossibility of keeping the law, it points us to someone else, doesn't it? Because we can never be good enough. Number two, I asked you, are you a Christian who struggles with sin? And that should be a lot of us in this room. But better understanding Jesus, better understanding the law, should cause us to joyfully obey him from a heart of worship, a heart of gratitude, a heart of thankfulness. This passage reminds me to walk by the Spirit and not by the law. Number three, I asked you, are you, sh- are you not sure why Jesus is such a big deal? We break God's law every day, don't we? Every day. And breaking God's law to us, one sin may not seem like a lot, but it's a lot, isn't it? God is holy. One sin in my life is enough for God to condemn me forever. And we don't pay a $300 speeding ticket or a six-month jail sentence or a 25-year prison sentence. Because of sin, what we deserve is an eternal hell sentence. Why is Jesus such a big deal? He came and for 30 plus years lived perfectly according to that law. Never broke one law. Never had a word, an attitude, or an action that was sinful. Sinless. 
He kept that law perfectly, and though he was perfect, and though he deserved nothing but worship, we put him on a cross, and he was killed. and He died that death penalty we deserve. Why is Jesus such a big deal? My only hope to be accepted by God, my only hope for eternal life, is in Christ. I have no other hope. Let's pray.